When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's been fascinating to see how a lot of the challenges that highly gifted children face are very similar to the challenges that some of my clients face. Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work, while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time. Feel like you're doing everything you were told, but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the Hard Truths Playbook you never got. Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. How do you find the path that takes you to a more rewarding and meaningful place. My guest today helps you do just that. But make no mistake, it is not new age chanting. Promotions, career shifts, stepping up your game, power. I've invited my colleague, Raquel Gonzalez Dalmao, because she's been a catalyst and coach helping so many global executives take meaningful advances in their careers. She's also based here in Europe, and so I wanted to explore with her perspectives she brings from coaching executives in the U.S. and Europe. Raquel, welcome to 97% Effective. Thank you, Michael. Very happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolute pleasure. You've lived and worked, and I mean worked deeply in senior roles in five countries around the globe. And it was interesting. I saw you sit on your website, you speak 4.5 languages. Does your coaching perspective shift when you're coaching in different languages? Yes. So I was born and raised in Barcelona in Spain. So I grew up bilingual Catalan and Spanish, then learned English and French as I spent a couple of years in Paris. So this was my baseline starting my coaching career. And I've lived in Luxembourg for the past 14 years. And here, the official languages are French and German. And I've been trying to learn German for the last 14 years (laughs) with limited success, let's put it this way. I understand enough to get by, but German is a hard language. And I put the 0.5 is for the half German that I know. And as a reminder that I still want to uh, learn German and get to fluency, but I'm not there yet. It's very interesting how uh, language influences our mindsets. 
in ways that we don't even realize. And uh, like the way we talk brings the culture that language represents. And I noticed that, uh, for example, when I coach in French, French in general like is a more hierarchical culture, particularly in working environments. And there's much more distance in terms of how you deal with authority and deference. Speaking in French, all of these references and frameworks about power and authority come into the conversation very naturally. And that's something that speaking in English, particularly with US-based clients, the framework around authority and the way we think about respecting the person in a higher seniority position is very different. And sometimes uh, when I have a client who's a French national born and raised in, in France, spent a long time in the U.S. and has now recently gone back to France, and we go back and forth in terms of language and culture, and like that's something that often comes up. The connection between language, culture, and how we think about power and relationships is much more intertwined than I would have thought to begin with. This is so fascinating. So as we're having our conversation today, feel free to bring in any examples, because I also think it's this wonderful thing, being global as well, when you know, there are certain languages that certain things are much more easy to express. And so to weave those into clients when you might have kind of a multi. Yes, actually, I have uh, several clients who are also bilingual uh, Spanish English and our sessions end up being a mess of Spanglish <laughs> where like, we switch from one language to another, depending on how both of us um, express um, ourselves better. You're, you're also an avid reader. Raquel, as you mentioned on your website, you prescribe a lot of books and a lot of reading fiction, nonfiction. What's one recently that's captured your imagination right now? So I'm now uh, reading a very interesting book about um, raising uh, highly gifted children. And um, like for context, uh, a few years ago, one of my children was diagnosed as highly gifted. Um, a couple of years before, uh, my son had been diagnosed as dyslexic. And uh, like in between, we've had also diagnosis around uh, attention deficit issues, like so ADHD. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of time reading about uh, those topics as a, <laughs> uh, like uh, the kind of mom that loves to read about parenting to uh, help and support uh, her children. And um, it's been fascinating to see how a lot of the challenges that highly gifted children face are very similar to the challenges that some of my clients face. Very often, uh, gifted children have attention issues or are dyslexic or have social interaction issues, like perhaps not fully autistic, um, but in in the spectrum. And they have a hard time dealing with um, arbitrary social norms um, and how to navigate social environments that sound like, you know, office politics very often. Right. Or uh, communication issues. No, they, they get the right answer immediately and then they have a hard time explaining how they got there to their teacher or like to their, their peers. And Talking to like some of my adult clients, I find that a lot of these issues um, come up uh, in corporate life all the time. 
and particularly with people who are highly intelligent themselves, who have done really well in uh, their careers by applying like that intelligence and hard work and like a, a lot of um, skills and have risen to a point in the hierarchy where, you know, like all these um, arbitrary social norms that we call office politics right. become much more relevant and they have to deal with those. And when like, they have a very clear view of what the CapEx policy should be for the company, and shockingly enough, their colleagues don't see that answer as obviously as they do, and they have to go through the process of communicating and persuading and building the alliances and building the, the, the arguments to um, push things forward and, and get new policies approved or, you know, get the promotion to. So when you're working with an individual who, who may exhibit some of these traits or challenges, how does your approach differ when they're trying to either learn or rewire some of those norms, like getting the CapEx policy that they believe is right through? Is there any interesting piece you can share there? Explain office politics as if it was an engineering problem. Uh. And like explain that, you know, a, a lot of people care much more about their status than about getting things done properly. And efficiency may be less important than building relationships and protecting existing relationships. And once you break it down, frameworks in sentences, in principles that are... Um, like more um, objective, then you can start building your own strategies to get you know the capex policy approved. Yeah. Um, in a way that doesn't insist all the time on why the capex policy is the right one, but in understanding that oh the CFO is very um, sensitive to any uh, reference that may put them in a in a lower status position. So you need to take care of that, you know, as part of your engineering problem that you're trying to solve. And then in terms of alliances, if you work with the people in risk management and the people in accounting and the people in treasury, perhaps you can like, put together a plan that will make uh, like that particular decision go through. So translating all of these arbitrary uh, norms and uh, communication strategies into um, like easily understandable uh, um, rules of thumb or, or strategies um, like makes it much easier for people who are like very focused on, on like rational and objective thinking uh, to deal with um, some of these uh, less rational. <laughs> realities of, of corporate life. You need to write an article or a book about this <laughs> because it also, it would strike me that having clients and being able to work with them through that then creates kind of even more tools that can even help your other clients. Yes. Because I've noticed this when I, especially when I coach individuals who are not like me or come from different lived experiences and seeing what helps them most. Mm -hmm. A lot of that I can bring to other clients as ways to get them yes. to, to reframe and see situations. You alluded a little to your background, but you, you, know, you were a civil engineer, grew up Barcelona, um, spent time in Paris, then went over to Stanford for your MBA, and then 10 years, 
right? <laughs> in tech, Amazon, Seattle moved over to the UK, uh, Europe, and then also went into, you know, European investment bank and public service and communication. So, so very diverse in a lot of senior positions. You said um, that Stanford at Amazon really made you more confident and ambitious as a leader. Could you share a few of the moments or, or areas there that, that really up those for you? I've always been a builder. Mm. I, I love to build stuff. And um, at Stanford, I found uh, a, an amazing place full of builders, builders who had um, amazing imaginations uh, to, to change the world and who were not... Uh, afraid or constrained in their imaginations by what had been in the past. And, and I think that that's very different from what I had uh, seen in Europe growing up. And that's what Stanford um, changed in me, like this confidence of we can rebuild, we can create things from scratch and make things better because what has been is in the past and what we have now is the present and the future. And we can build um, cool stuff to make things um, work better in the world. And um, working at, at, uh, in, at Amazon, and I, I joined in 2005, and like it was a very different place than it is today. Um, and we had everything to, to build. Like, I, uh, like when I moved to the UK office, I uh, deliberately chose to be a product manager in consumer electronics because back then we didn't know how to sell TVs online. Like we knew how to sell like books and, and DVDs and, and CDs, which were the technology at the moment. Um, but we didn't know how to sell TVs or like big electronics. And, and confronting these questions and building the solutions and the services that uh, would make that possible was what I loved doing. And I kept doing that. Uh, I, uh, we launched new categories in the UK. Then I moved to Luxembourg, which is um, the European headquarters. And from here, we launched digital music uh, stores across Europe. Then we launched a marketplace in Italy and Spain. We launched uh, automated translation um, across Europe, we built a massive team in India uh, that were doing excellent work. So by the time I left, I had a team of more than 200 people across six countries and like, dealing with Seattle on a regular basis. And this sense of being able to build new stuff that would solve um, problems that nobody had solved before was something that I absolutely loved. And, and like it really um, worked well with my own um, like skills of like, being very analytical and uh, systematic and, and um, data-driven. You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach, Michael Winderoff. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview. And, and so you've always had that build. You also, in that process, right, you went from product manager then to leading 200 people. There's that shift, which you work with many of you know, your clients and I work with mine, around moving to leadership, where you're not necessarily always doing that. You're influencing others who work for you, but getting resources, <laughs> power center in Seattle or in Luxembourg. And mm -hmm. you've soaked up 
kind of culturally, geographically, or different organizations you've been in, could you share some of the kind of things you did as a leader? Around 2010, I was uh, managing uh, like a, a central team, and I had a, I think about 20 nationalities, um, mostly Germans, uh, French, and Belgians, and a good chunk of um, Americans and Indians. And it was very interesting in this melting pot of Luxembourg, like how to manage that. We none of the um, of the cultures was particularly uh, dominant, um, so it, it was an interesting balance um, to make sure that um, we kept um, the common identity as stronger than uh, the particular national identities, and and we had. Uh, policy of only English, even with people who spoke German or French or um, other languages. And we had a little piggy. uh, And if you were caught uh, speaking in a non-English language, you would have to put money in there. And then like once a quarter, we went and had drinks with that money. The reality is that diversity uh, across any dimension, you you want to think about like national or like neurodiversity as we were talking before um or religious or um in ways of, of thinking means that there will be um tensions and misunderstandings and sometimes uh conflict and um if you want to work productively together in uh shared setting, you have to agree on some ground rules that are shared by everybody to to make it easier for everybody to understand what's going on and to be at their best selves. And uh, those common ground rules may be different from the rules of like where these people come from. And as we work with people who are different from us, we need to adapt uh, to shared norms that allow us to work well together. Part of the beauty of diversity is finding the shared common rules that allow us to work well together. Mm. Yeah, let's talk more about the, the coaching. And I mean, you've already shared some very unique things in terms of your very diverse client base, um, the experiences you've had, and you've had amazing breadth. Uh, we, we touched on it. And, you know, a lot of coaches, well, there's this rush to specialization or you focus on a particular area. I wanted to ask you, because you've almost gone the opposite way of, first of all, you, you, you teach right? <laughs> MBA courses in supply chain and marketing. So, you know, very diverse areas. Um, you coach around career change. You also facilitate in courses in finance and innovation. So it's this very broad area and areas. And people would say, well, then you're not a specialist in any. And I, I would disagree with that, but I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective on, because it's a, sometimes a hard conversation when someone says, what do you specialize in? Um, mm-hmm. But kind of what that brings to the, the coaching relationship or helps you. That's a really good question, and it's not something that I've done deliberately. I'm very curious by nature, and um, like when I was younger, I, I loved math and physics, and then went into engineering, and uh, then I learned about social sciences, and I found that fascinating. And, and 
business and finance and marketing. And, and for me, like this comes from a deep curiosity about the world and understanding how things work. And what I found is that as a coach, this helps my clients um, because their jobs are very broad by themselves and they have to deal with uh, um, a very um, diverse set of issues. And the fact that they can talk to me about all of these really helps them in connecting the dots because very often uh, they will tell me about like what's going on and uh, we will realize that like something that came up in the marketing um, meeting is actually very relevant to the discussion they're having with their bankers about um, like the next debt uh, issuance and being able to connect the dots and um, have a holistic perspective on what's going on in their jobs, in their day-to-day, -day, in their companies, is what makes uh, coaching uh, really valuable. And I, I'm not a specialist and I'm not a consultant. Like, I don't claim I have the right answers for all the topics you will, uh, like the clients will come up with. But I have a breadth of understanding of the different problems that uh, senior people usually face. And uh, I have frameworks to think through those problems. And I have the ability to uh, connect like, different um, issues that may come up in a way that um, the problems in one area don't break like the, what's working well in another area. No? Sometimes when we uh, specialize and think too narrowly, we may optimize for one particular aspect, but may break things in, in other areas. So, you know, I, I think that um, it's, it's not about me and my breath. It's about my clients and the breadth of their jobs and how they find value in talking about their own experience with somebody who understands yeah. that breadth yeah. of experience. Yeah, so that ability to meet them where they are. And then this, your, a key area that you also work with a lot of people around is career transitions. And so yes. often someone will become very specialized and, well, some people are trying to move up, but some people want to shift. And the ability here to help them reframe their strengths, right, that can be adapted to another area that would be unique or valuable in that area is huge. Because you do a lot of work in transitions, what is the, what is the top area that most people seem to fail or miss you know, when they're doing this? Usually I work with uh, people who have done very well in their careers and they've had a lot of success by applying a hard work, intelligence, being very systematic. And they come to coaching saying, well, you know, I think I'm bored. I think I want to do something different. So I've come up with this analysis of uh, like the options I'm considering. I have my tables with pros and cons and like some people come with scorecards and like, which can be useful. And they're like, well, again, so this is my conclusion, like my very analytical conclusion. And um, I want to do this. But I, I, I don't know how to do that. It's too difficult. And that's an approach that works well for certain types of decisions. Career transitions are usually more complex decisions that require more time 
and require a, a different set of, of skills and exercises. It's not only about the analytical, like the, the um, rational analysis of different dimensions, um, which is helpful, uh, but not enough. You need to have lived experiences of some of the um, options that you're considering to validate some hypotheses, to um, explore what uh, the new options really mean in, in concrete terms, and to understand yourself better. Like very often people come and say, no, 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 I think that what I want to do now is uh, move away from tech and do nonprofit work. And uh, they have very good reasons of why they might want to do that. But then when we go into the details of what it means and like the, the specifics of the day-to-day, -day, they often realize that, well, like I hadn't realized that, um, I don't know, being in a nonprofit world, it won't be as fast-paced as where I am now. And like all of a sudden they realize that the fast-paced environment with a lot of smart people around them is something that they will miss if they don't have. And um, taking the time to explore the different dimensions and, and to um, listen to themselves and how they react, even if it's irrational, like it doesn't have to be um, like what they expect, um, is usually what uh, makes it hard for successful people to transition because they, they want to apply, you know, like the same method that they have applied to so many other endeavors in life to career transition. And then they are frustrated when it doesn't work. No? And so that, that sounds a lot coming kind of from like the design thinking world yes. and innovation. It's um, experimenting, um, yes. Try before you buy, <laughs> so to speak. I'm, I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan of prototyping. Yeah, and and I, I I I remember you talking a lot about you integrate a lot of design your life um, mm -hmm. type ideas. Yep. Can you share anything there that would be relevant? Yes, um, when uh, clients come with um, a bunch of options. Um, like sometimes uh, they want to leave their big corporate job and they don't know whether they want to get into nonprofit, start their own company, uh, go sailing for 18 months or um, like go back to corporate at a competitor. Um, like we go through uh, like a structure exercise of um, defining in more detail uh, how each of these options actually looks like in the next five years. And um, we like, take the time to think about all the different dimensions in their lives and how they change in year one, year two, year three. And, and usually through this exercise, um, a lot of questions come up, things that we don't know, hypotheses that we want to validate, and very often like strong emotions that people didn't realize they had. And once they actually sit down and work the plan, they're like, oh, I actually realize that 18 months sailing would be wonderful the first three weeks and then I would get bored to death like please no it should be now no? so going through that that exercise really helps people and then um once we have the hypothesis prototypes are fantastic uh like having a side project uh if you want to start your own company start a, a small uh project in the evenings or in the weekends or um, if you're thinking about moving to a new country, 
um, spend some time there. Like actually, I, we did that with my family. We were considering moving back to California in 2018. And we just um, spent the whole summer holiday in California as a prototype. And then like, based on that prototype, we decided against <laughs> moving back to California. But it was a very valuable experience like to go through what it would mean for us to go to school uh, like in Palo Alto or like go to work in, in different places. And so um, prototypes and um, working on the narrative on like how you explain your story to yourself and others like, are really great exercises to get clarity on, on what you want to do next. Yeah. So these keys in career transitions, as you're looking at your career, I know that it also comes up, those who are more senior or not even more senior, a lot of people talk about also some of these side projects sitting on boards. And, and I know that mm -hmm. is an area that you've, you've worked in um, quite mm -hmm. a bit, not as many coaches do. For those out there who you know, are interested in board roles, it's an interesting area because it's not like there's they're advertised and so forth. Um, any few pieces of advice you would give to people if they're thinking about pursuing that um, based on, on your experiences? Yes. Uh, actually, this was one area of um, curiosity where I started learning about corporate governance and uh, how it impacts uh, organizations. Um, and as part of that exploration, um, I started collaborating with uh, an organization here in Luxembourg uh, that brings together um, uh, directors um, who sit on boards. And uh, I spent uh, several years uh, volunteering and uh, in the marketing um, group of that association and taking courses um, about corporate governance and, and how to sit on boards. And with time, uh, I was invited to join a couple of boards, one nonprofit, uh, the, the international school, and uh, like two um, like for-profit um, paid boards, uh, FinTech. And um, it was like a fascinating experience because there's so much that happens at boards that, uh, most executives don't understand deeply and sitting on the other side on, on the side of the of the directors gave me really good insights um, like about how things work how to make things work better uh, but also as a coach how to um, help my c-level um, clients prepare to engage with the board because uh, I can bring the, the director's uh, perspective into our conversation. And um, for, like people ask me, like, how, how do you get there? And um, I would say that this is a midterm project. Uh, one needs to take at least like three, four years uh, to get there. And usually it's a good idea to start with nonprofit boards. Um, where you know, if you uh, if you practice a sport and there's a professional uh, sports association uh, for that sport in your country, they probably have a volunteer uh, base board and uh, like there's either elections every year or they accept um, uh, volunteers that. Uh, can sign up and uh, going through that teaches you a lot about corporate governance and how to manage board dynamics. Um, 
in most countries, there are uh, associations that run courses uh, on corporate governance for, for directors or aspiring directors. And uh, signing up for those um, courses and volunteering on nonprofit boards allows you to start building the network, which is the key to get to the really more interesting uh, and paying uh, board mandates. And it, it takes time. It takes time. It takes like curiosity and willingness to learn and to uh, volunteer time for things that may be of, of high value for you. But it's also fascinating because then you get the view from the top and uh, can influence better uh, how organizations work, either directly through the board or through as a coach uh, through clients. So it takes time, no magic bullets. And just one quick question that came up, you said also sitting on that side, you got to see how your C-suite executives, some of the things, how the board was seeing them. Any one pearl of wisdom you want to share that most C-suite executives miss when they're presenting to boards? Usually, um, executives are more worried about performance and results than about risk, which makes sense. On the other side, directors care a lot about risk ah. for good reasons, in the sense that uh, depending on the, on the particular setup, uh, as directors, they may have like, personal responsibility uh, around some risks. So they care a lot about some risks. And um, for sometimes executives try to convince the board by insisting on profitability, uh, growth, um, efficiency, like a bunch of like beautiful like um, performance-related uh, ideas, and dismiss potential risks um, around like legal uh, compliance, uh, even bankruptcy issues, as like, don't worry, like we're focusing on performance. And on the board side, the director is very, very aware of risks and how it can impact them uh, as a board and find the executive dismissing the risk as uh, annoying at best, uh, dangerous at worst. And I usually try to bring that uh, risk perspective into the conversation because very often the risk is not that bad or it can be mitigated. But if the executive systematically ignores it, um, then the, the communication received by the board can be misinterpreted unnecessarily. Yeah. So the risk is not in addressing, not addressing the risk. <laughs> yes, um, exactly. In this yeah. Thing, this risk is like, oh, no, don't worry. Like, just like, no, no, I do worry. It's my job. As a director, my job is to worry about risk and performance, obviously, but also about risk. Raquel, so as we come to the end, we've one of the areas I wanted to talk about, which we've touched on, was a lot of the individuals you coach, amazing high-rising individuals who often don't fit into the dominant group, whether they're underrepresented, neurodivergent, kind of the minority in their kind of majority setting. You've talked about a bunch of things that you observe or see, but is there anything you want to add that underrepresented groups need to be thinking about as they're building influence and power and accelerating their careers? I think that for many people coming from underrepresented groups, 
usually the first hurdle is networking, like the network, not having the powerful network that will give them like the advice and the ideas and the opportunities and the support and the encouragement and building that network of diverse people, like including people in the dominant group is key. And doing that with curiosity and, and like willingness to understand and connect with others, I think is usually what makes underrepresented people successful. And at a similar level, self-confidence is the other big issue because they are often told that they don't belong in there or that they are missing some skills or some experiences. And that usually means that they get on their own way and they are the ones pulling out of opportunities that could be open to them. But because we've been told so often that, no, women don't belong in here. We are the ones who say, oh, you know, I'm just not even going to sign up or consider myself a, as a candidate for that because it's too difficult. And we all need to be more pushy and <laughs> like, be more self-confident no? or invoke Like sometimes with clients, I tell them, okay, picture the person that you consider more self-confident uh, in your network, even if they have no reason at all to be that self-confident. Okay. Mm-hmm. We call this guy... John, okay, invoke your internal John. Like, what would John do in these circumstances? He would uh, (laughs) present and show up to get the next promotion, wouldn't he? Okay, so do that. Do like John. (laughs) Invoke that self-confident person inside to, to go ahead. Raquel, absolute pleasure. And especially digging into some of these areas I didn't know as much about. And I think most of the audience didn't working with neurodivergent individuals, the very global reach you've had and some of those things about your own past rising to the, you know, very senior levels at companies. How do people best reach you, see your work? Start at my website, www.raquelgonzalezdalmau.com or just send me an email at raquel at pomeraservices.com. Pomera written as P-O-M-E-R-A services altogether.com. So yeah, yeah, reach out. Yeah. So you're a fantastic coach. And I will also point out, similar to me, we are both based in Europe, but we have global clientele, quite a few in the States. So I think that's a huge amount of benefits, the breadth, the diversity that you bring into the coaching relationship. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to 97% Effective where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.changwinderoth.com. W-E-N-D-E-R-O-T-H dot com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.